Well, good morning, church. It's been a joy to worship Christ with you. Um, it's been a joy to watch brothers and sisters declare their faith in Him alone through baptism. And it's my privilege to bring the Word this morning. And even as uh, Billy was praying and, and reading Scripture, I was just aware that I'm not worthy, but He is worthy. And what a privilege and honor it is to, to unpack His Word. Well, in this conversation that we see Jesus having with this crowd in John chapter 8, and, and we see a lot of hostility coming from this crowd, we see Jesus saying some hard things to these unbelievers. And last week, Pastor Bill preached on the preceding text in, with, in which Jesus had some particularly strong words for this crowd. Who are rejecting him. And, 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 and Bill actually mentioned at one point during his study, he wondered, and he actually went and talked with, with Robbie about this, he wondered if, if these people that Jesus was, were talking to, if they were damned for sure, if there was even hope for them. And I thought this was a good question. You've got to take the words that Jesus says seriously. And he had said to them, you, of your, you are of your father to the devil. That, that, those are strong words. And he said to them, you cannot bear to hear my word. You are not of God. Can, can you imagine hearing those things from, from Jesus, from the Messiah, from the Son of God? Now, now, here's a question I had, maybe a, a further, deeper question, maybe, and that is, who, who was this crowd that Jesus was addressing? Like, who were in the crowd, right? Um, and, and the reason I, I, I asked that question is I, I wondered, could it be that some in that crowd did believe or were, were considering belief or would later repent and believe in Jesus. And, and interestingly, our text this morning, when speaking of the, those in the crowd who were going back and forth with Jesus, it refers to them in verse 48, 52, and 57 as simply the Jews. And we, we see that as well in verse 21 and 30, 31 of, of this, this whole, I'm sorry, verse 22 and 31 of this whole conversation in chapter 8. And by that, I take it to mean uh, not every single individual in, that, in the crowd were, were saying these words to Jesus, but it was, it was kind of like the leaders of the crowd, okay, there at the, at the temple complex that were having this debate with, with Jesus. And, and you might have noted back in verse 13, we, we heard that, that word, the Pharisees, right? And, and so you might think, well, these were all Pharisees. Well, not necessarily. Uh, when, you, when you go back in, in chapter 7, we see several references to the chief priests and the Pharisees, right? Well, well, who were the chief priests? Well, the, the, the priests actually were mostly Sadducees during Jesus' day, and, and this was kind of the, the top of the pecking order socially. However, the, the Sadducees were the ones that we kind of know of as being the, the liberals theologically, right, who denied the resurrection, and, and they liked the moral teachings of God's law, and they believed in kind of a, a far-off transcendent God, but they didn't really see the miracles as being real in the Old Testament, and, and, and they didn't actually believe in a resurrection. And then, of course, the Pharisees were the opposite side of that, right? They were the, the yin to their yang. 
the Pharisees were, were those who, who took every word literally. They loved the law. They looked forward to the coming resurrection. And yet, these were the legalists. Uh, they, they, were, they, they loved the minutiae. And interestingly enough, the, the, the Pharisees, uh, there were priests, like we know that um, um, Nicodemus, for instance, was a Pharisee. Um, but, but most of the actual priests were Sadducees. So clearly this group is a, is, a, is a mixture. You've got priests, you've got Sadducees, you've got Pharisees, you've got a lot of other people in this, in this group. And so, so I wondered, well, you know, was everybody in this crowd hostile to Jesus, right? And, and we see even when you look back at the, at the big picture of this conversation, there were people who were wondering. There were, there were even controversies going on within the group. Who is this? Who is this man? We read in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, after Jesus had died and risen from the dead and given the great commission and, and the gospel was spreading, we read this in verse 7 of Acts chapter 6. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What, what hope, right? So, so this, this priestly class of people, mostly Sadducees, but some Pharisees, came to believe after Christ had given his life and risen from the dead, that he was indeed their Messiah and the very, the very Son of God, the man whom he said. So I think, I think that it's very possible here that there was at least one person in this crowd, right? Maybe even one of the people who were, who were fighting back and arguing with Jesus who later came to faith and did one day believe. And, and the reason I mention all this is that while we see strong words from Christ, Jesus was calling them out on their sin of unbelief. The, the, the opposite side or the mirror side of that is he was offering them hope by calling them to repentance and belief in him. See, as long as there's a heart beating in the chest, there's hope for even a, a scoffer. And Jesus here was on a rescue mission, not seeking his glory, but the glory of his father. And so why is he even taking the time to engage with these people? It's because he's on a rescue mission. So let's remember that as we, as we hear his words. And so we see the very first verse that Pastor Billy read this morning uh, was an insult from the Jews to Jesus. And so we, we read in verse 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And, and there's just no other way of looking at this is this is just a mean insult, right? They, they knew he wasn't from Samaria, right? They knew exactly where Jesus is from. They're just being mean, okay? And they're accusing him of actually being demon-possessed. And so at this point, let's remember theologically who Jesus is and who Jesus was. All the power in the universe in this human being who could have at that point said, that's it, right? Imagine the transfiguration, right? Right there, Jesus could have decided to lift his arms in the air and his eyes light up like, like lightning 
And out of his fingers could have come lightning bolts that could have lifted every one of these scoffers into the air, upside down, and he could have dangled them and said, I want you to know, as I throw you into hell forever, who I am. He could have body slammed him and bam, cast him into the lake of fire for eternity. He could have done that had he chosen to. But he didn't. He responded with these six statements that we read through. And the first, we're just going to kind of walk through these statements. I'm going to try to kind of unpack them a bit for you. Um, in your mind, you may be able to make some application uh, to your life. But then I'm going to try to close this sermon with, with three points uh, that, that I'm drawing out of all of this that I hope will make a difference in, in your life. So the points that Jesus makes to them are these. And number one, and you'll find these in your listening guide in your, in your bulletin if you'd like to hang on to those. The first point is that he honors his father, and his father seeks his glory. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Well, I wonder if you've ever been wrongly insulted. Um, I have. And when we're insulted, there's an innate desire for immediate vindication, is there not? Right? And, and here what we see is that Christ, instead of putting his thoughts on his own injury, he, he looks and seeks the glory of God. He keeps his focus on his Father's glory. And, and his father has his back. He's, he's actually stating here that, that God seeks the glory of, 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 of Jesus. And, and, and we'll see more on that in, in a bit. But there's also a warning here in these words. He says, he, that is God, is the judge. So God is going to vindicate Jesus. And there is going to be quite literally hell to pay for this blasphemy that these wicked men are, are speaking against their Messiah, the, the Son of God. But again, Jesus here is reminding them of that truth and holding out hope for repentance. And so it's really interesting, the transition. He, he says, and he is the judge, but then he says in verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, when Jesus says that, it means listen, listen. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And at first you might think, what, what, what's the logical progression going on? He's just warned them that God is the judge. God is their judge. They are, their, their future is damnation, but there is hope. Here he's still holding out hope for salvation, for their salvation, for the salvation of these people who are blaspheming and insulting and rejecting him. And so, the second statement Jesus makes is, if anyone keeps his word, he will not die. He says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Francis Bacon wrote, men fear death as children fear to go in the dark. Let's stop and think about that for a moment. 
We in our culture don't care much for death. We do all we can to fight it, right? Think about the, the amount of money that our society spends on medical services or, or gym memberships or products that, that either keep you or make you look young. Maybe that make you look younger than you actually look the moment after you wake up. Okay, we, we are obsessed with staying young. In, in some cultures, um, it's actually an, a compliment. It's an honor to have gray hair, right? The Afghans call uh, a, a person with wisdom a rishafed, a, a white beard. That means you're worth listening to. You've now arrived. And yet, we do everything to, you know, to color our hair so we don't look that way, right? Uh, we, we don't want to um, march towards that aging process and, and that final Rubicon called death. And, and we avoid it, meaning what is the first thing that happens at the scene of an accident if, if, someone is, if there's a casualty, someone's died? There's a sheet. We don't want to, you know, to see that body as people drive by, right, before it's loaded up. Um, we, we cover it up unless we're making fun of it. And so you have the zombie movies, you have Halloween. And, and I'll tell you, one of the reasons that I'm personally against uh, this, what I think is a wicked holiday in our culture, uh, is for one, God says, what does light have to do with darkness? But the fact is there's, there's so much uh, wrong teaching at Halloween about death. It's turned into a mocking, laughing matter where, where people can kind of like crawl up out of the ground or something and come back when that's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that, that there's once appointed a, a time for man to die, and then there's the judgment. And then there's either eternal life or eternal death. And that is the biblical truth of the gospel, and, and Halloween mocks that and, and, and gives a false narrative and, 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 and makes it all a joke. But we fear death. We, we fear the uncertainty of death, not knowing when it might lurk, right? We fear the, the permanence of death as human beings. And we, we seem to, to know and, and rage against it because we seem to, to know that we, our soul must somehow live on somewhere. I mean, how can death really be the end of a person's consciousness and, and hopes and dreams and accomplishments and relationships? How can that all end so suddenly and forevermore? Well, why is it that we as human beings have such a hard time with death? Well, I believe it's because God has placed eternity in our hearts. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11. The humans know that there, there must be something that endures, that the soul must go somewhere. And if we think about the nature of death, if, if you have been to a funeral recently, you may have, have gone in for a visitation. I, I remember uh, as a young man uh, going to the visitation of my, grand, my, my grandfather, uh, Grampy, who I, I love dearly. And, and I remember going into a, a funeral home and, and approaching the casket, and there was the shell of Grampy laying there. He, they had his suspenders on, he always wore suspenders, and, 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 and they had his you know, favorite clothes. And yet I, I looked at his face and I realized that's not Grampy. He's, he's not here, right? There's been a separation 
And that's what physical death is. It's, it's a separation of the soul from the body. And, and that's why you can look at someone who is very much alive who has recently died, and though that body is, is the same, the soul being departed, they're not there anymore. It's clear. There's a separation. Well, eternal death, which is far more significant here because it is for eternity, eternal death is separation of the soul from God. See, God created us in His image. When, when He breathed life into Adam, He gave him a soul or a spirit, right? And, and, and that is what makes uh, humans distinct. We are designed in God's image to have a relationship with Him. And so, we can be physically alive and yet spiritually dead, separated from God by our sin in this life. But for eternity forward, those who, who die without faith in Jesus Christ will face eternal death, separation from God in a place the Bible calls hell. In fact, Revelation chapter 20 Verse 14 and 15 says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So that's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about seeing death, experiencing that state of separation and judgment for eternity from God the Father. And so Jesus here is talking about not uh, physical immortality, but spiritual immortality, spiritual life. When he says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, what does it mean to keep his word? Because because if we have this gift of salvation in Christ, therefore, as, as 1 Corinthians says, death loses its sting, right? Though we die, we shall live for eternity future and actually be more alive than we ever were in this life. So what does it mean to to keep His Word? Well, it means to believe it and to obey it and and to to hang on to it tightly, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, to abide in Christ and, and to abide in His Word. Well, at a later time in the book of John, we read the story of Jesus uh, going to a funeral of of a friend who had died and I think it's appropriate for us to, to kind of reflect on this a little bit because um, uh, even th- those of us who are in Christ, um, it's okay to grieve. In fact, it's right to grieve when a loved one passes. Jesus grieved when Lazarus died. The shortest book of the Bible or the shortest verse of the Bible is two words. It says Jesus wept even though he knew what he was about to do. He, he genuinely grieved the, the, the separation that the loss of his friend Lazarus and, and the pain of those whom he loved. So it's okay to grieve. But what Jesus told Martha as she was grieving her, her brother Lazarus' death, in John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Well, the Jews here in this conversation, they understood him. And once again, they disbelieved. 
And they, they ask the question, how can you, a man, say you have power over death? And, and so they ask a question of Jesus that's actually still very relevant today. Verse 52, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Again, they had to get that insult in. Abraham died. Remember how proud they were to be of Abraham's stock. Their faith was in their heritage instead of their Messiah. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Well, this is a relevant question. You know, there, there are many who, in our day, who would, would want to say that Jesus was, you know, a, a sage. He was a, a, a wise man, a revolutionary. He was the embodiment of love. But that's it. And, and you know, you can't square, uh, when we read this stuff that Jesus actually said, you cannot square it uh, with that sentiment. C.S. Lewis was famous for saying that when you listen to what Jesus actually had to say about himself, including these very statements, he was either a liar or a lunatic or he truly was whom he said he was. He he is Lord. A liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Now, now they've accused Jesus of lying already, and, and now they're actually accusing him by saying he has a demon of being a lunatic. They're saying, you are crazy. You are nuts. You, you, you are, you're trying to tell, me, tell us here that, that you have power over death? Are, are you, you, you think you're greater than Abraham who died and all the prophets who died? You are, the stuff you're saying is crazy. And that leads us to the third statement of Jesus in which he stated that his father, God, is the one who glorifies him. Verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me of whom you say, he is our God. Now this was a a very clear statement. Jesus is saying, God the Father, the deity that you claim to worship, Yahweh God is my Father. And he will indeed glorify me though you insult me. And we know this is true. In Philippians 2, verse 9, we we read, after the humiliation of Christ, we read about the exaltation of Christ by God the Father. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God the Father is, is, is glorified when his son is worshiped. This, these words of Christ were spoken during his humiliation of, 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 of being a human, despised and rejected. And yet God is glorified when we worship his son. My, my brothers are spending the next few days out at sea in a rowboat and they're doing some training for a, a, a journey they've got ahead where they're going to row across the Atlantic Ocean. And, uh, but this isn't going to be easy, uh, they're, this training and all, and, and, and uh, you know, they're going to have to spend a few days figuring out how to 
go two hours on, rowing, two hours off, sleeping, eating, um, you know, the weight and balance of the boat, trying to get along with four guys in a tiny little boat. And, and I sent them this text this morning as they were, they were rowing out to sea. I said, remember this text. And when you look up at the stars, worship Christ. Worship Christ. Well, the next point Jesus makes, he continues here. He states that he knows his father and he keeps his word. Verse 55, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. So Jesus asks us to follow him by keeping his word. Well, here we see Jesus modeling what he asks of us. He kept his father's word and he delights in that relationship with his father. And you know what? He invites us into that same relationship through faith. He said, his fifth point, he says, he goes on and he says that Abraham looked forward in faith to see him. Now this is quite the statement. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Verse 56, he saw it and was glad. And, and so the Jews said to him, verse 57, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? And of course, this was the setup for the big reveal in which Jesus made his sixth and final statement, which was very, very clearly that he is God. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, now notice here a uh, little grammar. He didn't say before Abraham was born, I was. I was there before he was born. Now, he's not saying, hey, I'm, I'm more than 2,000 years old. You know, I've been around for a long time. Uh, I'm, I'm a superman, right? Uh, no, what he, what he says here is before Abraham was, I am. In other words, I am transcendent over time. I am eternal. And, and only God can say that. Only God can make that claim to being transcendent, to being self-existing before anyone else. Only God can make that statement. And you know what? God did make that statement when he revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. You remember the story. God, or Moses had been called by God to, to, to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And, and, and Moses had seen this, this image, this symbol, this, this, uh, this, this self-perpetuating fire that was the, a very picture of the presence of God and recognized he was on holy ground in the presence of God. And, and, and Moses says, on it, yes, sir. No, that's not what he said. Moses said, um, uh, who am I to go? And, and God said, I will be with you. He says, he says well, who, who do I say sent me? You got to have a name, right? And so what did God say to Moses? I am who I am. In, in, in Greek, Jesus said the exact same words. Ego, me, I am. In, in Hebrew, this is how Adonai or Yahweh came to exist. The very name of God, the very sacred name of God for the, for the Hebrews who followed, followed him through the wilderness. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me 
to you. Now, all that happened well before Abraham was born. So what Jesus is saying is, in that burning bush, speaking to your father Abraham, that was me commissioning him. Through the wilderness, guiding you, that was, that was me. I am sent him. I am delivered you. That is me. This is who I am. God and Jesus claim to be eternal, eternally existent. Now, um, the Jews here who, who heard him clearly understood his meaning. There, there's no doubt in their minds exactly what he was saying. No, no more questions. They, they knew that, that either Jesus Christ was the very Messiah and, and the very deity, the Yahweh God himself become human, or this, this is just untenable blasphemy that we can't take anymore. We can't allow it to exist anymore. And so they took the latter interpretation and we read in verse 59, so they, pick up, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and he went out of the temple. So this was a very clear, very powerful claim to deity. And if you're ever in a conversation with, with someone who doesn't believe that Jesus was actually claiming to be God himself, I hope that you will point them to this text that we just read. You know, there, there are folks who would say, well, Jesus is the son of God or a son of God, as was Lucifer, our Mormon friends, right? Uh, or our friends who might be Jehovah's Witnesses who would add a, add a little article to John 1.1. 1, 1. Maybe you've pulled out your Bible and you've said it, it says it right here, right? In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And they'll pull out their Bible and say, ah, oh, nope, nope, you've got that wrong. Your translation, you know, you, you know all these scholars for the last 2,000 years did not know how to translate Greek. We do. Uh, and it says um, that he was a God, okay? There's a, there's a little indefinite article there that, that they've placed there to try to kind of um, remove the power of the deity or of the equivalent of Christ with God the Father. And you can argue back and forth. Let me just tell you, the, the, the young people who show up at your door don't know Greek, okay? Uh, they've, they've been taught you know, a, a little apologetic here, but they are not Greek scholars, right? Uh, and you don't have to be a Greek scholar either. All you got to do is say, okay, well, let's look at John chapter 8 and read this text and, and point back as it does so clearly, as Jesus did so clearly to Exodus chapter 3. Okay. Well, let's land the plane. And if you've heard me say that before, don't be thinking this means in two minutes we're done. Let's make some applications for our life this week, okay? And, and I'll be honest, I, I have a little bit of a, of a personal stake in this. Um, on Tuesday, we're going to be, Monday, we're packing up my daughter Grace, and Tuesday, moving her to Tallahassee. Um, it hadn't dawned on me uh, yet, but um, it is and it will, and so this is her last Sunday with us uh, Hopefully not for long. Hopefully she'll be back to visit, but, but regularly, week after week. And I, Grace, I love you, and I pray that you and Aubrey will very quickly find a church that proclaims the gospel, that will love you, and that will um, um, help you be a disciple of Christ and, and where you can serve. And, and so, um, but you know what? 
this might be the last time you're listening to me for a little while, and you know what? I want you to, to go and join another church and to hear the word and to, to invest and be a, be a part of, of, that, of that fellowship of, of faith. But if, if there's something I want you to hang on to, and, and I say this to all of you, um, especially you young people who are going off to college, or, or maybe you hear this message and you've gone off to college. I better take a sip. I'm making everyone nervous. Okay, put, put my water down. Um, I, I hope you'll remember these three points from this text here. And, and the first is this. Jesus is God. And, and that is incredibly relevant for your life. Because what that means is he is with you. You know, sometimes maybe in the back of our minds, you know, in Sunday school or church or when we're reading the Bible even, maybe the devil will try to see, sow some seeds of doubt. You're like, okay, this is all great, but what does this really have to do with today and my life and the struggles I face and the challenges and the relationships? Well, this stuff all happened 2,000 years ago. How is this relevant today? Well, what I want to say is it is because he is with us. Let's go back in our minds for a moment to the burning bush. When God said to Abraham, I am, he was saying more than one thing. He was certainly saying, I am eternally existent. That is true. We have that in the picture of a self-perpetuating flame. But he was saying more than that. Picture Moses, he, he, he saw, what did he see? He saw this, he saw this, this burning bush, this, this flame. Light as God revealed his presence, right? And, and what, did, what, did, what did God say in that moment to Moses? Here he's trying to take a, a man who had, who had fled from, from Egypt, who had been living in fear in the wilderness for years, and he's commissioning him to go back on a dangerous mission. What he's telling Moses is, I am with you. I am with you. And he said that. When Moses kind of, kind of cringed and, and kind of, kind of equivocated, God said in Exodus three twelve, He said, "But I will be with you. You don't have to be a powerful, charismatic speaker, Moses. You don't have to have nerves of steel. You just have to know that I am with you." And, and then later in verse sixteen and seventeen, He said, "Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them." The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, he has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. It had been hundreds of years that they had been enslaved. But God had observed what had been done. And I promise you that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to a land that is flowing with milk and honey. So how did God reveal his presence and remind them of his presence? Remember there was the burning bush and then there was the cloud of fire in the wilderness that would lead them. They would literally walk underneath it and, and literally follow the very presence of God in his Shekinah glory, leading them through the wilderness. And when it was time to stop and settle, the very cloud of fire that, that, that pictured for them, God's presence with them would, would settle down into, into the place where they were to camp. And they would set up the tabernacle and God would inhabit the Holy of Holies and people would camp 
around the tabernacle, living in the presence of God. Imagine the comfort, maybe the godly fear that that picture would, would, would burn into their minds. And then what happened hundreds of years, several thousands of years later, after Jesus had died on the cross, after he had risen from the dead, at Pentecost? Remember the, the early Christians gathered together? There, there were still some, some, some questions. There was still some fear. They gathered together. Uh, you know, they're starting to boldly proclaim. What happens? Suddenly there's a rushing wind, and the fire of God went from a cloud of fire into little tongues of fire that went out individually and, and settled on their heads and settled into their hearts. And what did that, what did that represent? What it represented was, I, Yahweh, am with you. I, Jesus, and, and Father, and Holy Spirit, triune God, I am with you, and I'm going to still lead you, and guide you, and help you, and protect you, and embolden you, and comfort you, and convict you. I am in your heart now. I am there. I am with you. And this is the very thing that Jesus said, his very last words in Matthew. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so, this Christianity, and I hope you remember this, Grace, is more than just a belief system or a worldview. And it is that. But it is a personal relationship with the living God who promises to be with you and to guide you and lead you if you look to him and endure in faith. So Jesus is God. This, is very, this, this theology is very relevant to your, to your life. Um, when, you, when you speak to him in prayer, in, in the quiet of, of, of your room, he is with you. He is actually, the, the God of, of creation, the God of salvation is actually listening to every word you say, and he is with you. Well, Jesus is also worthy of our living for his glory. That's our second application point. Jesus is worthy of living for his glory. Now, we all live for glory. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you use that terminology or not, we are all obsessed with glory. It is in our nature. We, we, we talk about and we worship glorious things, whether that's an amazing view that you saw or an outstanding accomplishment, an incredible feat of, of athleticism or bravery, we talk about these things. We think about these things. We post them on social media. We're obsessed. We make movies about them. We, we are all about glory. It's in our nature, all right? So don't be turned off by that word glory, even if it's not regularly used in our uh, regular non-church vocabulary today. So what I'm saying is that Jesus is worthy of living for his glory every day and in every aspect of our day. So point everything back to him. When, when you experience glorious things, let those be signposts of who he is, of where he is, of where you will be one day, and, and make sure that when you do accomplish great things, that you give him glory, that you reflect that honor to him, that glory to him, that you ascribe worth to him. In, in other words, let his glory be more important to you than your own. Be willing to, to even sacrifice some of your own reputation, maybe. Maybe you don't get invited to every party. 
because you give him glory, just as Jesus gave his Father glory. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. That means everything, not just Sunday when you kind of come to recharge. It means Monday and, and Wednesday and Friday night and when you're studying for exams and when you're out with friends, when you're working, when you're, when you're playing, everything should be done for His glory, for His honor. And that means nothing should be done that is an opposite to His glory, right? We, we shouldn't laugh or be entertained by that for which Jesus died, that which is sinful, that which is opposite to his glory. 1 Peter 4.11 tells us that, that we should use the gifts he's given us, uh, the talents he's given us for Christ's glory. Peter writes, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. One more point here when it comes to glory. We read in the high priestly prayer in John 17 as, as Jesus was pouring out his heart to his father before he went to the cross. He, he longed, this is a very personal thing he says, but he, he longed for his disciples to behold his true glory. Now, they beheld his glory day to day. I mean, they saw Jesus returning evil with good. They saw Jesus doing miracles. They, they saw him, they, they heard him teaching the, the truths of God, and yet he was still wearing the, the, the clothing of humanity, veiling his glory, right? There's a moment at the transfiguration where, where a couple of his disciples beheld his glory, and John writes about that in John 1. We beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten Son of God. But Jesus longed for his disciples to behold his true glory. And, and that is something that, that we one day will, if we're, if we're faithful to the end, one day we will actually see his true glory in heaven. And so Jesus prayed, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So how, do, how does this relate to you tomorrow? Well, John Piper said it best. God is most glorified in us when we are satisfied in Him. So delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desire of your heart. Last point, Jesus is our Savior. And, and that means that He will give us this glory of eternal life if we keep his word. That's what he said. If you keep my word. Now, now there, there's a, a sense of perseverance there. Believing now, but hanging on to that faith. And, and though the, the devil and the world and, and our own sinful flesh may tempt us to depart from that faith, if we keep that faith and persevere in that faith, eternal life and eternal glory awaits. So let me encourage you to live for him and to make him known. And, and you don't have to fear death or anything less than death. Now, now, I want to say this to all of you, brothers and sisters, but on my heart is really those of you who are suffering right now. Some, some of you may have, may have been living uh, for many years, and maybe you are really living in pain right now. And, and maybe it's hard to be optimistic 
Um, what Brother Bill says is true. It gets gooder and gooder, but maybe you say, you know, I don't feel that way. I'm, I'm losing my sight, and I can't hear as well, and my back hurts, and my joints hurt, and I don't sleep well. Well, I, I want to encourage you to hope in the resurrection. Maybe you're having a hard time remembering names. That's already me, right? Maybe, maybe your, your mind is, isn't as sharp as it once was. Hope in the resurrection rather than in a better or perfect life now. Because I, I hope you get better if you're hurting, but you might not until glory. So look forward to this resurrection that we're promised. Our lives are full of sorrow and signposts. When I say signposts, I mean the good stuff. And there is the good stuff, right? And, and whenever you have the good stuff, when you just sit back and you're like, wow, the lines have fallen in pleasant places. Thank you, God. You know, um, you know thank you for this experience. Thank you for this victory. Thank you for this beautiful opportunity to experience a relationship or, or just to sit back and, and enjoy the beauty of your creation or a beautiful home to live in. That's a signpost that should point you to future glory. Don't let it distract you from it. Don't worship it. Look to the resurrection. Well, maybe right now sometimes in the middle of the night you wake up and you struggle. Maybe there's doubts or, or fears Maybe you battle for peace or for sleep. Let me encourage you to hold on to Jesus and to keep his word because joy will come in the morning. Grace and young people, as you go off, I pray that you will make it your ambition to glorify Jesus with your life, that that will really be what you care about more than anything else. Paul wrote to the Romans, in Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us that sight, that sight of faith to behold your glory now, even though it's through a dark glassly, or through a through a glass darkly. Father, I pray that, 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 we, that you would just do a work in our hearts this week, that we might see Christ throughout our week, that we might want to do it like he did. May he be our hero. And we can't get that. We can't maintain that without spending time in your word. So help us be Bible people daily. Help us to talk with you. Lord, may this not just be a, uh, a, a part of our life where we say, well, we believe this system of ideas but then we get, have to get on to the rest of it. But Lord, may we do everything, everything, the big things and the little things for your glory with our eyes on Jesus. And I pray in his name, amen.